So when I was young, much younger, uh, elementary school to be specific, I don't remember the exact age, but I was a young elementary school student and spent some time over at a friend's house. It was one of those situations where we went to, you know, Cub Scouts together and uh, carpooled and shared. So we would spend time just hanging out, playing in the yard. And I remember enough about this friend's house that I remember he had a swing set in the backyard that was bigger than a normal backyard swing set. I don't remember how big. If the tiny Tommy that I was would tell you how big it was, I would tell you it was giant swing set. It probably wasn't, but it was bigger than normal. And by the way, I wasn't really ever tiny. Um, I, I found out what husky pants were as I was an adult. Some of y'all feel me, right? But I was a small kid nonetheless, and swinging high was a thrill to me. And I remember being there swinging, and uh, we were just outside waiting for uh, my mother to come and get me. And I um, was so engaged in what was going on. I've thought of this story so many times. I can't remember if my friend's mother said, you all stay outside and don't come back in or what the scoop was. But as we were out there, I felt this urge to go to the restroom. And um, you probably see where this is going already. I had this in my mind. I thought, well, I could probably dry if I swing long enough. (laughs) It didn't work out. The drying part did not. I remember next being in my friend's kitchen at the kitchen table as his mother called my mother and I was crying and totally embarrassed. And I've thought of that story, which you can tell, hopefully I'm scarred for life um, from this um, story. I've thought of this story and I thought, what was going on in my mind at that time? Like, what, what was going on? Why was I so afraid to just say, could I go to the restroom? I was old enough to understand how potty time worked, so this was not a surprise to me. But something inside of my mind, like I knew better, but I didn't act as if I did. I was thinking if if only knowing the right thing produced the right result, wouldn't that be better? I was thinking about times in my life where I knew the right thing, but I did not produce the right result and unfortunately that list was quite long of opportunities or stories to tell you far too often in my life I have had the experience of knowing what is right but then not acting upon that information or that knowledge I've been for whatever reason too scared too weak too selfish whatever the case I did not act and do the right thing. It'd be great if knowing the right thing always produced the right action in our lives. Wouldn't it be awesome if that's how it worked? I mean, for example, I've read a whole bunch of books about how to preach a great sermon. So therefore, this is going to be an amazing sermon. (laughs) I wish that were the case. Oh, I wish it were the case. Don't you wish that that were the case? that it would be logical, that we could just collect the right amount of information and it would produce the right result. Unfortunately, we've lived long enough that we know that's not always true because there's a missing ingredient in that formula and that missing ingredient is action. You see, collecting the right amount of knowledge is only part of the formula for us to get to where we want to be. We must also act upon that which we know is right. We have to take the risk the chance 
overcome our fear, make a choice that's not selfish, whatever the case, we have to trust that to act upon what we know will be the right decision. Have you ever made a poor decision knowing the right thing and not having your action match up to that? Have you ever had all the right information that you needed and then panicked in the moment? I'm convinced that when it comes to God's mission for us, our problem is not a lack of information. I'm convinced that when it comes to God's mission, the problem is not that we don't know enough. It's that we're not doing enough with what we already know. The missing ingredient is the action. It's the doing. We lack the trust to step out in faith. And so we stop short, and without the faith that's required to act, we return to our old habits, our old ways. And this passage that we're reading today in Genesis introduces us to a group of people that are in a very similar situation. These people in Genesis 11 did not lack the required information. They lacked obedience. They didn't have a lack of knowledge. They lacked faith to trust in what God had told them. They lacked a willingness to risk and to follow God's command. They lacked obedience to say yes to God's call in their life. And so as we explore this passage in Genesis 11, what I would ask is that you would take a journey with me to allow this text to become a mirror to you. You see, Scripture can act like that if we would allow it. To be a mirror to our own selves, to reflect on what's going on in our own lives. Would you have the courage to take that journey with me this morning to hear and to obey what God's word might say for us together? As we're introduced in Genesis 11, let's meet these people. We don't exactly know who they are. All it says in the beginning of chapter 11 is the whole earth had one language and the same words And it says, as the people migrated from the east, they found a plain and they settled there. And so all we know is this a group of people who found a spot to settle down. In order to maybe understand what's going on, we would search for greater context to look and gain some more understanding of what's happening. And so we would jump backwards to Genesis chapter 10. We might look and explore there. But if we do that, we would notice a strange tension. Perhaps you've seen this tension. If you've read through uh, the book of Genesis, you may have noticed this before. For example, this tension I'm talking about is that it would seem as though the, that all the earth had one language, but then in chapter 10, verse 5, we read this. It says, from these, the coastland peoples spread into all their lands, each with his own language by their clans and their, nation, and their nations. So you get to Genesis chapter 11, and you think, It says all the earth had one language, and you're like, wait a minute, that's not right. I just read about other languages. So this tension, I want to explore that just for a moment as we get uh, started this morning, because I just asked this question, do you think the author, who's Moses, do you think he forgot what he had written? Do you think that he had forgotten what he had written earlier? Here is in chapter 11, and he had forgotten what he just wrote in chapter 10, verse 5 also in verse 20, also in verse 31, just two verses earlier, it would seem strange that he might have forgotten. In fact, 
A better explanation might be to understand that chapters 10 and 11 are a part of an artistry of forming a narrative. It fits with a structure that is consistent with the rest of the early chapters of Genesis, where a narrative is, uh, is bracketed by a, a set of genealogies, and that narrative in the middle of there creates an artistry in the way that the writing takes place. But an easier one for me to understand is I think about how stories are told. I think about movies I watch where uh, the, it opens up to a scene where we see the end of a story and then we have a flashback and that's where the content, the narrative unfolds, is in the middle of a flashback. You know that this is often how stories are told and it's a way to introduce the drama of the story in a unique way. And so as we look at the larger narrative of Genesis, let's see how that might unfold and take shape. A quick overview of Genesis and the narrative is that God had been displeased with his people and he had sent a great flood. It says in Genesis 6, verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention, the thoughts of his heart, was evil continually. And then in chapter 7, God says, I will send rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights and every living creature I will blot out from the face of the earth. This is the story of Noah, Genesis chapter 6, chapter 7, and chapter 8, and then in chapter 9, the flood has, um, has ended, and God gives the promise of a rainbow, uh, and, and promising to the people that no longer will he send a flood to totally destroy the earth, and I can imagine this was a helpful thing for the people who are terrified at what God, they have just witnessed God doing. And so I imagine that every time it would rain, they might just tremble in fear. And so in chapter 9, verse 11, it says, I will establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And so the narrative continues. The questions that may arise as we read, would, would this great flood correct the problem of wickedness? Does the awe and the fear that's now established, does it curb the behavior of men? Now that they see that God takes the problem of sin seriously, will this correct their sinful choices and rebellion? The tension rises as the story unfolds. And so just as God had commanded in the garden to Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, he tells Noah and his sons in Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, God says, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. His command to Noah was the same after the flood. Fill the earth, spread out, multiply. Would they listen? Would they respond? Would this reset and reminder of mission set them on the right path or would their rebellion continue? Most certainly we would think that they would be set on the right path. And so the next chapter of genealogy, chapter 10, plays out and it appears as though that is what happens. You, we read through and we see multiplication. We see the filling of the earth. Genesis 10 looks as if it is a fulfillment of what God had commanded. It looks like obedience. And then chapter 11 drops the bomb on us. It wasn't obedience. They were not spreading. They were hunkering down. They had formed a city. The sinfulness of the people continued. They disregarded God's plan and they created their own how could they have forgotten? 
Did they not know that God was serious about his plans of spreading and filling and multiplying? Let's jump in and see in verse 4, the heart of the passage today. They said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. This verse flies in the face of God's plan. Can you feel the tension, the spike in tension of the story? As the narrative takes shape, it becomes abundantly clear that God's plan was for them to go, but their rebellion crafted a different plan. Their plan was to build a city so that they would not be dispersed, to build a tower, to make a name for themselves. These sins gripped their hearts in such a way that in the immediate shadow of the great flood, they devised a plan that was marked by their rebellion against God to hunker down, to settle, and then make a statement about their own power, their own strength, and their own ability. What sins had they given themselves to? They desired very clearly the praise of others. In fact, I would say they loved the praise of others above the praise of God. This can drive us into selfish decisions. And the second thing was they had an idol of safety, of comfort, of security. You see, building a city is not wrong. The scriptures are not uh, speaking against urbanization. That is not what we would find uh, all throughout the, both the Old and the New Testament. We see that God is not against urbanization. There's no reason to take this as a justification that we should not build cities. That's not what this is teaching us. But when urbanization reveals the realities of our hearts in such a way namely that we love security and we love comfort and that these loves knit themselves so tightly into our hearts that they create this hunkering down mindset. People become willing to reject God's plans and to abort God's mission. So the question, does this mentality exist in us? In our previous series that we just wrapped up, it's called Who Are My People? We discovered that we often experience a tug in our lives towards collecting uh, groups of people with a shared experience or shared value or uh, same family. We discovered that we often misidentify ourselves with people that are not the people God has for us to be with. The whole, what we said throughout this series together is that our people are those that are on God's mission with us. So hunkering down, building a city in the plain of Shinar demonstrates a fear and reluctance to go. It reflects a heart that's afraid of risk. Friends, listen, as I allow this passage to be a mirror to me, I was cut to the core. Because I see in my own life how much I hold tightly to the praise of others. How, how much that determines what I choose. How afraid I am of risk. How my love of comfort creates sluggish action at best. There's so much to say about what God taught me in this scripture, but let's keep moving. Verse 5. 
the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. This tower that they built was called a ziggurat, and this ziggurat is just a pagan building that looks sort of like a pyramid, but with a flat top. And with the flat top, it had some stuff on the top, and really the, the big difference between the pyramid and the ziggurat was that the pyramids had empty inside stuff and the ziggurats were full. They were just filled with fill dirt. Their purpose was to hold a staircase. And so as they held this staircase, what it symbolized was this visual picture of a desire to create a structure upon which the gods might come down from heaven. Any time in Mesopotamian culture where there's an occurrence of this phrase that a building had its head in the heavens, the idea was to point to a temple complex with a ziggurat there for God to come down. This was a misunderstanding of the people and how God acted. It demonstrated that they had veered away from understanding who God was. And so verse 5 plays upon that as it says, God comes down. It's almost like it takes a jab at what they are doing. This huge tower that was the size of a modern skyscraper, something that is quite a feat for man, God has to come down to see it. Now we know that God can see all things from anywhere. He doesn't have to come out of the heavens to see it. But as if to say, do you want me to be impressed by this building that you built? Or or, do you want me to come down and say, wow, look at that. I'm so proud of you. What a cool building. I don't know what they expected God to think. But I thought about myself and how often we get blinded by our own sin in such a way that we get focused in on building towers in our lives. And we think that God's going to come down and say, oh, good job. I'm so proud of that. And we've built this tower. But because we've been driven by our own sin or selfish motive or it's about making a name for ourselves and not honoring God's name what we're doing uh, is is setting ourselves up to see the same result because God did come down and he shattered their disobedience and made clustering impossible he confused their language and broke humanity into many peoples and many languages verse 6 goes on to say Behold, they are one people, they have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing they propose will now be impossible. As I look at that, I think the suggestion might be, is, is, is God intimidated by the, the, the abilities of men? I think absolutely not. Uh, we could get into the, the Hebrew words there, but the cool part is that those words propose and impossible. If you would circle those two words, the only other place that that's used in our Bible uh, together in one verse is Job 42, verse 2. It says, I know that you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. The idea is that God is not intimidated by what we can do. The reality is that God can do all things and his purpose cannot be broken. God is not afraid of the purpose of men. In fact, what God does in enacting these restraints is not something to be afraid of what we might do, but is ultimately an act of grace as God restrains with human language. You see, it wasn't the tower that needed to be knocked down. It wasn't the city that was the problem. It was the arrogance, the pride, 
the self-exalting mission. And so God's restraint of human language prevents that. It's incredible to see, though, how God uses this to accomplish his ultimate purpose. There's an author and preacher named John Piper, and in a sermon on Genesis 11, he says this. He says, we often think that the diversity of languages and cultures and peoples and political states is a hindrance to the spread of the gospel. But that's not the way God sees it. God is way more concerned with unity than diversity in the world. God knows something that we may not know. If there were no restraints on an anti-God unifying effort, then those efforts could crush his people with one edict. So we might ask, is it a good thing that there are hundreds of nation states in the world that spend most of their time nervous about the other? We humans are far too evil to be allowed to unite into one government or one language. You can read about the outcome of that in Revelation as you read about Babylon. But might we consider that God knows something that we do not and that in the diversity of languages and peoples that the gospel spreads better because of it and flourishes more in diversity. God's pattern for gathering together and scattering is a rhythm like a breathing in and a breathing out. And it gives life to the gospel mission. The restraints that were issued in response to sin are exactly what God uses and redeems for his glory. Revelation 7 talks about the praise of all languages that result in the uh, giving glory and praise in all languages to Jesus as Lord. And so we listen and take heed to what God is calling us to take a new posture, a posture of going. We reject the impulse to hunker and we go because the mission demands it. The gospel is spread because of it. Friends, we're not calling you to this because it's something we are unwilling to do ourselves. In fact, I am so glad that First Christian Church has been all about it. You see, we are in a multi-site structure on purpose. This is what we're about. We're about going. We have been leading you in this strategy for some time to go, to go forth because the mission demands it. I am here in Afton because this matters. We are here because this matters. We are here because we are convicted that God's call for us to go matters. We did some research, and in this school district alone, the Chucky Doak High School School District, there are 16,000 people in this school district. And the demographic data reveals that 61% of those people are not involved in a church. That's 9,800 people. And over the last five years, the number of people involved in church has declined by 4.2%. That means that just in this school district alone, over the last five years, that there are 675 people who used to have a relationship with Christ that was flourishing and now have for some reason given up on that. I'm not satisfied with that. And God's heart breaks for that. 
And we can do something about it. We can make a difference because we are willing to set aside our desire to hunker and be comfort, comfortable and go and to be here. We've moved here because this matters. And we're in this place because this grips our heart. We may be portable, but we're not temporary. We may set up and we may clean up every week, but we're not temporary. We're here for the long haul. We're here because we believe God's called us. And we're asking you to go with us. We're asking you to be here with us, to be all about it in Afton because it makes a difference. I am for this community, and I love these people because God loves them. And we're asking you in this series, will you come be with us? I'm not a flashy guy. I'm not charismatic. I'm not going to raise a crowd. I'm a pretty slow, measured, kind of chill dude. But what I am is loyal. And I'm loyal to, the, to God's mission. And I have given myself wholly to this cause. I had someone stop me this week. And it's kind of that stopping where it's like you're sort of going and they, they're like, no, 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 look at me and listen. And this is what they said. They said, First Christian Church is changing lives. I want you to know, friends, that God is changing lives. We've been in this for six months together, both here and at Greenville. And God is changing lives. God is growing his kingdom because of your efforts here and there. In the last six months together, what we have done is we have seen an average of 130 people now a part of our congregation that were not before. That's in six months. God is doing something here, and we want to be in, in, right in the midst of what God is doing. We want to be a part of the blessing, and the blessing is in the going. Could you imagine what God would do if you say yes to his call to go? Remember at the beginning when I told you this super embarrassing story? I told you this story because the truth is I'm often scared to take a risk. I have idols of pride and comfort and I love security and peace. And so if you feel like it's a struggle for you to have the courage to say yes to this kind of mission, believe me, I understand that. I feel that too. I've put myself out there. I've showed my heart to you because I know it's worth it. It's worth the risk. Not because I want to build a kingdom for my own name's sake, but the name of Jesus. This is for him, and it's worth the risk. And so for Jesus, I'll risk it all. Anywhere, anytime, for Jesus. He has my all. Lord Jesus, until you return, we're going to be all about it. We're going to be on mission for you. Would you move us to action for the sake of your gospel? If we don't, who will? God, if we don't move, wreck our plans. Topple down the towers that we might build for ourselves so that we would no longer be tied or hindered to a mission that is not yours. Move us to action, Lord, we pray. Amen.